You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, uh, welcome to Unsiloed. My name is Greg LeBlanc, and we're here to explore all sorts of interdisciplinary thinking, interdisciplinary research. And today, I'm really excited to host William Quinn, who is an economic and financial historian. He's at Queen's University in Belfast, and he's co-author of this book, Boom and Bust, about the history of financial bubbles. So welcome, William. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So economic history, financial history in particular, is one of those things that, you know, it sits between a couple different departments. And I think we were talking about how sometimes it's hard to know which, which camp you really fit in because financial historians and economic historians don't really have a camp of their own. And I was wondering kind of what, what attracted you to this topic? Why did you get interested in it? And, you know, when I look and try to figure out why people are interested in this, it tends to be very cyclical. I mean, I remember after the financial crisis of 2008, all of a sudden everybody was interested in financial history. I remember after the dot-com crash, everybody was interested in financial history. And then when, when it looks like history is not repeating itself, then all of a sudden everybody's kind of no longer interested in history and they think that they're in this unique moment. So I was wondering, you know, why did you get interested in this? Is it, were you driven by some kind of crisis or crash that uh, inspired things? Maybe yourself lost a few dollars here and there in, in one of these crises or crashes? No, well, thankfully, I'm not really old enough. I had no money whenever the financial crisis struck because I was just graduating high school. The first degree in 2008, the first degree which I worked on was chemical engineering, and I hated it. This was 2008, 2009, so just as the severity of the financial crisis was becoming clear. And while I was hating chemical engineering, I also discovered that I'm quite interested in economics. Um, I got in touch with the university and said, starting from 2009, and can I change degree? And um, basically economics was full. There was a degree in economics and economic history, which actually suited me a lot better because history was one of my best subjects in high school. And I really wanted a subject where I could keep the quantitative skills, but also start to write because while I was in chemical engineering, I missed writing. So my undergraduate degree then, this was at University of Manchester, England, was in economics and economic history. And uh, I graduated and came back home for, to Belfast. And as a remarkable stroke of luck, Queen's University Belfast, the main university in Northern Ireland, had a booming economic history department. And I got in touch with them and got onto the master's program in finance, which sort of shifted me towards financial history more because it was run by my co-author on the book, John Turner. So I went onto the master's and I did my PhD with John. And when the PhD was coming to an end, he said, interested in working on uh, this book with me, this history of financial bubbles. And yeah, I didn't really have to think twice about it. You know, a lot of people come to economic history from more of a technical side. Now, just come from more of a humanistic side. And in fact, in economics, you have a lot of people coming, you know, with a very scientific background. Sometimes people accuse economists of having physics envy, right? And wanting to develop mathematical models that are as accurate in describing human behavior as they are in describing the behavior of physical objects. And they're, they're often very, very frustrated. I, mean, I, I started in astrophysics and moved over and, and unfortunately people are kind of frustrating like that, right? When you try to find these, these general rules. I think in, in your book, you tried to come up with some kind of general principles about why and when financial bubbles occur. 
Do you feel comfortable with your model? Could you articulate it for us? If you're trying to predict, you know, when and where a bubble's going to happen, what would you look to? Uh, so, well, predicting bubbles is very hard. Uh, obviously, this is what everyone wants to know. It's like, when is the next bubble going to arrive? When is it going to crash? Where, where should I put my money in uh, right before it starts to rise? That's something's uh, obviously very difficult. But we, what we really looked at, first of all, was what caused bubbles in the past. In the book, we go through really 10 episodes or 10 eras. Because there were some eras when there were multiple bubbles happening at once. So say Japan in the 1980s, you had land bubbles and stock bubbles at the same time. And we came up with this model, uh, which we called the bubble triangle. And this is basically similar to the fire triangle in chemistry. So, so did you learn the fire triangle in chemistry? <laughs> no, I, I tried to avoid chemistry at all costs. Okay. So the fire triangle is something we're taught in school is that uh, you have three necessary conditions for a fire. There's oxygen, heat, and fuel. And uh, once you have those three necessary conditions, all you need is a spark. And whenever you have a spark, you have a fire. So we decided to translate this to what we call the bubble triangle. And it's, so it's also got three sides. So uh, the first side is uh, what we call marketability, which is a little bit similar to liquidity. So how easy are assets to buy and sell? This is multidimensional, so it could be what are the laws surrounding how easy it is to buy and sell this asset? How divisible is it? Can you package it up and sell it in small quantities? What are the transaction costs involved? What are the legal costs involved? Does anything have to physically change hands in order to buy it? And what we find is that the more marketable an asset is, the less work you have to do to buy and sell an asset, the more likely it is to experience a bubble. And you might think, uh, of historical examples already of where bubbles are preceded by these sudden increases in marketability. So, for example, right before the dot-com bubble, you had the internet making it much easier to buy and sell stocks at home. Uh, with the housing bubble in the 2000s, you had mortgage-backed securities. You're turning these mortgages on the asset side uh, of a bank's balance sheet that it can't simply buy and sell. And using financial engineering to repackage these mortgages and something that can be bought and sold. That's an example of an increase in marketability. Yeah, the one I didn't know about was the token in Japan, which was a sudden shift in, in the marketability of, of equities. Right, yeah. And you had some, several other restrictions being removed, so it became much easier for foreigners to buy and sell equities in Japan. You started to get uh, this enormous growth in the uh, market for futures, which are very good for speculating. I wonder when we see right now and with the rise of Robinhood and these fractional shares, um, you, know, you can buy $5 worth of Netflix, you can buy $5 worth of Tesla. Now, it's not a huge difference. I mean, you could always buy you know, a single share, but now that you can buy things in such tiny quantities, I wonder if this is creating a bit of a spark as well. Yeah, definitely. It's um, even just this year we've seen, or last year now, uh, we've seen the, the, this quite significant increase in marketability. Um, so an app like Robinhood, you know, this is why we say marketability and not liquidity, because it's there are more dimensions to it. So an app like Robinhood, it's not just that it's easy to buy and sell assets uh, on Robinhood, it's that it's fun, it's right there and it's in your pocket at all times. And you can buy any quantity, no matter how small. I, th I think that's very significant. But of course, high marketability is only necessary 
Um, it, it's just one of the conditions we have. You know, it's interesting about this, this concept of marketability you mentioned. I mean, this could be applied to the retail market or the wholesale market, right? I think for a lot of people, when they look at behavioral economics, they, they tend to think, you know, it's all about stupid people, right? And uh, I think Larry Summers famously said, there's lots of stupid people look around. But I think what one of the messages in your book is that, that the bubbles aren't necessarily caused by a lack of sophistication. I mean, there's one element of it is, is when you have new investors and kind of unsophisticated investors kind of getting into the market. But there are plenty of situations where, where that's not the case, right? Definitely, yeah. So um, when we look at historical bubbles, so what, one of the reasons for looking at historical bubbles is that you sometimes have data that you don't get from modern bubbles. I mean, we looked at the British bicycle mania, which is a chapter in the book. Uh, you have a record of who all the shareholders were in several companies, so you can see who's holding at different times. And what we find is that the types of investor who invest in these basically bubble companies, companies that are sort of rising and falling um, in that sort of typical boom-bust pattern, investors in these companies aren't inexperienced investors. They're not the types of investors you would think don't know what they're doing. They're investors who like risk. They're investors who are associated with buying mining shares, these high volatility assets. Um, so it, yeah, it's not a case that people don't know what they're doing. I'm sure some people don't know what they're doing when they buy bubble assets, but it's more often a case of doing it for fun for the same reasons that you might bet on sport or bet, bet on Las Vegas. Some people enjoy betting on stocks. And I think that's the more significant driver in, in a behavioral sense than naivety or inexperience. I mean, one of the things about, I liked about your book was that I've, I've been studying these things for over 20 years and, you know, there's so much uh, new material in here. For instance, the, the bicycle bubble, I, I hadn't really known a whole lot about it. And so I was wondering, why did you pick the ones that you did? Um, one of the most conspicuous omissions in your book is the famous uh, tulip bubble. And, and you talked about why you, you left that one out and yet included the uh, kind of the, the emerging market, you know, railroad bubble and the bicycle bubble and, and a couple others that are much lesser known. Yeah, so the, well, the, the short reason is that we left out the commodity bubbles. So if you, you compare a bubble in tulips to a bubble in housing or a bubble in stocks, the economic significance is just not comparable at all. And a bubble in tulips is a bit like a bubble in comic books or baseball cards or Beanie Babies. It's interesting as a human phenomena, but as financial economists, that's not really what we're trying to get at. And we want the bubbles that have either serious economic consequences or you'd expect them to have serious economic consequences. And if they don't, then that's telling you something interesting about what types of bubbles are more destructive. The tulip mania, I mean, the best book on the tulip mania is by uh, Anne Goldgar. She's sort of summarized the tulip mania. And I think tulips became objects of speculation. So people did start buying tulips because the price was going up and there was a bit of a gambling going on with tulip bulbs. But a lot of what's been said about it is just not true. It's sort of derived from these articles that were written as satire, uh, but through the ages have been misinterpreted and mistranslated and started to be presented as though they were fact. Really, I, I just don't think the tulip mania was significant enough to warrant inclusion in a book about 
financial bubbles, uh, as we say, and their economic significance. Yeah, but uh, speaking of satire, I mean, you do have some fantastic examples. I mean, one of the ones that I really liked was this one, you know, the company for carrying on undertaking of great advantage, but nobody knows what it is. (laughs) And this is from from the 1700s. And, you know, this reminded me of, there was an ICO back in 2018, I think, and it was called the useless token. And if you looked at the prospectus, the promoters said that they just wanted to get a Lambo. That was the whole purpose of the, the token was to, and they, they raised, I don't know, half a million dollars or something. It was, it was pretty remarkable. A couple others that you point to is this, the, the Republic of Oye, I think was one. And, and then what was the other one? The, the Gamuchkin Railroad. My other favorite one was the Aeronautical Swine Shearing Lunarian Joint Stock uh, Company, the Lunarian Ass. <laughs> Where do you find this? This is fantastic. I mean, these are great anecdotes, but they do sort of say something about kind of what people are potentially capable of. Yeah, definitely. I think so. That these conditions that we talk about, that this sort of high marketability, people have lots of money to invest. There's a lot of speculation going on. These apply to genuine assets or houses. They're a real asset, but you can speculate in them. But they also make it easier for total fraudsters. So, I mean, it's no coincidence that Charles Ponzi was able to find so many investors for his scheme during the Florida housing bubble. Same, of course, yeah, Enron during the the dot-com bubble. These are much more common at the same time as you're getting bubbles. It's it's the same instinct of buying an asset because its price is going up. It allows these to succeed. I have some great uh, ICOs. There's a, a writer I know called David Gerard, an enormous Bitcoin skeptic. He's working on a book called The 50 Worst ICOs. And this includes a proposal for transmuting uh, elements into one another on the blockchain. So alchemy, essentially, is a 3,000-year-old pseudoscience, but on the blockchain. Well, of course, if it's on the blockchain, then it's got to be legit. Right, exactly. Just X on the blockchain. That was how you raised money back in 2018. But but the other point that I think you mentioned was that you know some of these bubbles have systemic have a systemic consequences when they collapse. Others are, are fairly isolated. So when we think about the dot com bubble, stock market crashed, collapsed, but it, it didn't really lead to a general recession in any way. Whereas the collapse of the housing bubble in 2008 really did. And I remember when Hank Paulson came to Berkeley, and this is right around the time when Bear Stearns collapsed, he said, oh, well, you know, subprime is such an isolated segment of the market and that there won't be any spillover effects and we'll be able to kind of, you know, contain it the way the Venetians would just put the people with the plague on the boat out in the harbor and, and we wouldn't really have to have to worry about it. But the spillover effects turned out to be quite enormous. Um, I was wondering if you, were you able to kind of develop any kind of theory about when these things become systemic. And I'm, I'm thinking in particular about we're seeing Bitcoin now at $35,000. If this price were to collapse, would it just be a bunch of uh, cab drivers? And I think in, in the, you mentioned in the 20s when there was all sorts of concern that you had women and clergymen investing in stocks. So, so that means it's got to be a bubble. And I remember when Bitcoin was at like uh, 12000 back in 2018, and I had an Uber driver who was telling me all about all the different coins I needed to buy. So I was like, all right, that, that's a bad sign right there. But, you know, the, the collapse of the first Bitcoin bubble didn't lead to any kind of spillovers, right? It's kind of like a Beanie Baby sort of speculation. How were you able to figure out exactly, you know, when did these linkages turn out to be, be significant? 
Yeah, so I, I think the key variable is debt. To what extent are these assets, the bubble assets, being bought with borrowed money? And when they're bought by borrowed money, is there going to be a chain of defaults in the case of a crash? Now, you, you can have quite a minor chain of defaults. So say an internet company during the dot-com bubble goes burst, it is going to have some effects. It's going to default in some obligations to someone that are going to cause a contraction in economic activity. But it's not major. Your sort of major focal point, as we're all very much aware, is the banks, financial institutions. Really, what, what I can't speak for Hank Paulson, but, but I've read an interview with Ben Bernanke, and the, what he missed was the insurance industry, was the failure of AIG. We saw Lehman coming, and he had a good idea of what was happening with the other banks, but the amount of liabilities that AIG had taken on in insuring these assets was something that he just wasn't prepared for at all. And that was the point. This was the point in the 2008 crisis when he realized that this is going to be serious. I mean, the other... I'd say that the 2000s housing bubble had the worst economic consequences of any bubble in history, apart from potentially the Australian land boom. And the thing about the Australian land boom is that it's exactly the same thing, but 100 years earlier. You have this large shadow banking industry, completely unregulated. You have the, the recent removal of regulations by politicians who were heavily invested in these banks and who were very much involved in the land boom. You had a housing boom, which involved a lot of small property developers who were essentially not adding much value, just buying land and subdividing it and repackaging it and selling it on for a higher price. And then you had a crash, and this just brings down the entire financial system and uh, plunged Australia into one of the worst recessions in a developed country ever. So these are your really bad bubbles. The bubbles that aren't so bad, you know, maybe it's an asset that has no connection to the real economy, something like tulips or beanie babies. It could be that the people who are buying the asset aren't doing it with borrowed money. They're just buying with their own money and then they're losing that money, but it's not having knock-on effects. And to answer your final question about Bitcoin, it's not institutionally important. Bitcoiners will tell you that institutions are investing in Bitcoin, but they're not. So I think we're pretty safe in the event of a crash. I think you also mentioned that the cultural significance of the asset matters. So it's not just the financial interconnectivity, but you know, when the stock market was something that was sort of on the front page of every newspaper back in the 1920s. And so even if, if people didn't hold stocks, they at least psychologically saw the collapse in the stock market as something which was a bad omen and, and forced them to kind of spend less. Yes, yeah, so this has been a bit of a puzzle in economic history. In popular culture, you know, outside of economic history departments, people think of the Wall Street crash as the start of the Great Depression, um, but it wasn't. The Wall Street crash happens, and then in early 1930, the economy starts to recover a little bit, and Businesses become quite confident that the worst is over. And then at the end of 30, things suddenly get much worse. So economists have looked at this and decided the Wall Street crash probably didn't cause the depression. And the reason for this is that it's not causing bank failures. So what, what actually one of the reasons that you get the crash is that 
margin lenders are become incredibly unscrupulous. They're just demanding the money back immediately. And because they do that, they don't fail. So these people who were actually exposed to the Wall Street crash, in the end, they may not even have been particularly significant, but in any case, they're not losing much money. The companies aren't failing a result of the Wall Street crash. It's a correction from their point of view. And the investors who are losing money are still a very proportion of the population. If they cut back their spending, it's not going to have systemic effects either. So economists look at this and think the Wall Street crash couldn't have caused the depression. One of the things that we argue in the book, and something really that Robert Shiller has argued as well, is that it's not about these real economic connections. It's about the narrative. It's this narrative that we have of the 1920s in the US where everything was good, the economies were growing, everyone was happy, the roaring 20s, and then suddenly everything went wrong and we had to endure a hangover as a result of this overextension. And the moment it went wrong was the Wall Street crash. What Robert Schiller points out is that narrative was around at the time. So he points to church sermons that followed the Wall Street crash and shows that they were all pushing this narrative, this idea of you know, access is bad, Everyone needs to stop spending so much. Everyone needs to rein it back in and sober up. And as a result of that, this may explain this drop in consumer spending, which had no obvious economic cause in the data, but was responsible for sparking off this chain of bank failures that was the Great Depression. I think you mentioned also the role of the media for its estate, I think, in your concluding chapter. And I remember during the dot-com bubble, there, were, there must have been, I don't know, a dozen new periodicals that came out and people started subscribing to something called the Industry Standard and, you know, Wired and all these publications that were kind of breathlessly and, and feverishly covering all of the, the new technology. And so it really kind of wasn't just that there was this new technology, but then this new technology, everyone was thinking about it, everybody was talking about it, everybody was aware of it. And that's one of the sparks. You mentioned that you know once you have the conditions in place, right, in the fire triangle, you need a spark. And, and you say that both politics and technology can provide the spark. What, what kinds of common features do you see in these sparks? And how would one kind of identify whether or not something is one of these uh, potential sparks? Yeah, it's a good question. And, that, and this is the hard part. So what we, what we can say is we look at the, three sides of the bubble triangle. So is there a lot of money and credit? And right now there is. Is there a lot of marketability? Is marketability increasing? And right now it is. And is there a lot of speculation? And right now there is. So we say that you know these conditions are in place. So it's likely that we're going to get a lot of bubbles in the near future. And recently we have. But the difficult part is identifying the sparks. As you say, what is the bubble going to be in? You know, these can be either technological or political. I, I think technological is a little bit easier to spot because everyone will be talking about it and it will have a very exciting story connected to it. Yeah, one of the things I didn't, I didn't really think about was the, the role of electricity in the 1920s, kind of how that really created a spark. <laughs> Excuse the pun, right? Yeah. But that, was, that was sort of something that, that you know, people were super excited about. Yeah, definitely. Electricity, mass production. Yeah, I mean, Tom Nicholas has a study on innovative firms during the 1920s and finds that they were you know, finding it much easier to raise capital and that this was justified, that they were also performing really well. So the 1920s was just one of the most remarkable years of growth. 
uh, in U.S. economic history, and um, partly driven by these new technologies. So you, you have electricity, and you also have like refrigeration technology, uh, food processing, mass production, famously. This is causing this economic growth, and with economic growth, you have more money available for people to invest in stocks, and you also get a certain level of excitement. And one of the things might be a little bit forgotten is that 1920s was the peak of modernism. This idea that we're in a new world now and science is going to solve a lot of our problems. And this is just one step removed from, sure, the, the company isn't making any money, but the old rules don't apply. We're in a new era. This new era narrative that Robert Schiller highlights, which is then used as a way for people to talk themselves in to invest in stocks that don't look particularly like good investments. And you're coming out of a pandemic as well, right? <laughs> I mean, a real serious pandemic in 1918. So, you know, one of the other chapters that you wrote about is, is China. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit different, right? I mean, this story is a different one. It's kind of a story of financial repression and kind of res really restrictions on what people can and, and cannot invest in. Uh, and I've always been puzzled by China because it seems like it's, you know, in a perpetual bubble, right? I mean, you, you highlight kind of these two peaks, but as far as I can remember, I, I can't remember a time when people weren't saying that, for instance, Chinese you know, real estate is in a bubble, right? I think in, in Hong Kong, the rent is three times your annual income or so, you know, the, the, the numbers are crazy. I don't have them at my fingertips, but real estate in particular is it's so, has risen so enormously and is so crazy expensive and so many areas. I'm wondering if you could just say a few things about what China looks like to you and how you make sense of what's happening in China. China is a heavily controlled market. Yeah, everything in China is heavily controlled. I, I think in the West, we sometimes get this idea that whenever prices are kept artificially high through some kind of political means, that automatically means that those prices are unsustainable, that it's just destiny, that at some point they'll have to come crashing back to earth. That might be the case, but it's not necessarily the case. You know, the Chinese government is very powerful, and sometimes it feels, this was the story of the 2015 bubble, was that the Chinese authorities tried to do everything to prevent it from crashing, but they couldn't. A lot of what they did just made things worse. But on the other hand, if you think about the aftermath of the 2008 crash, a lot of people were saying that quantitative easing was just going to inflate this bubble that would fall apart. And that isn't what happened. I don't know what the stock market is going to do tomorrow, but as of today, 2008 looks like a pretty great time to have invested. So I think all markets are political to some extent, and it's not enough to say, look, these prices are being propped up by the government, therefore there's going to be a crash. You need to make the argument that can't go on, that this political interference isn't sustainable. And that's why prices are going to fall. But it's very difficult. Yeah. I guess I'd, I'd like to conclude by hearing your thoughts on kind of the future of economic history. What's its place? Do you think that people, practitioners, it's important for practitioners to understand history? I mean, we teach in the business school, we teach the case method. And so a lot of students are often frustrated, like, why are we reading these cases from 20 years ago, right? Why aren't we reading a case from a month ago, right? <laughs> you know, what, what can be learned from, from history? What, why is it important for people, or is it important for people to, to have an historical perspective, especially if they're practitioners, say, if you're an investor? Yeah, but, so there are a lot of reasons. I obviously 
right rare event risk. So some things just don't happen very often. And if you're focused on the last 20 years, you might think they never happen. You might think if you hadn't lived through a financial crisis in 2008, maybe you didn't think a financial crisis was possible. But one of the aspects of history uh, that I'm finding more and more is that when you study economic history, you start challenging your unwritten assumptions. Say you invest in the stock market today, you're used to this these markets where it's very easy to buy shares, it's very easy to sell shares, it's very easy to short sell shares. Stocks are very liquid, there's very good transparency requirements, so you generally have a good idea of what you're investing in. And you can make the mistake of assuming that that's just what markets are like. But when you look at history and you look at where these markets came from and what we had to go through to get to the point where markets were like this, you're able to see more of the mechanics underlying these systems. And I think that helps you to make better decisions. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to teach financial history and I used to think of it not as a history course, but really a, a studying less than perfectly liquid markets, right? Studying markets that don't seem to conform to the narrative of efficient markets. That, that was sort of how I approached it. And so we would go from studying 18th century to studying, you know, the unbanked in the 1990s, so to speak. So it's very, very similar. We talked about why it's important for practitioners to understand a bit of history. How important is it for historians to kind of understand the economics and, and finance? I sometimes find that, that historians can be great storytellers, but oftentimes the, the model that sits beneath the story is, hasn't been fully fleshed out. Yeah, I would agree with that a lot. I mean, I, I love historians. I love history and I love history books. Uh, what I think they could take from economics is the rigor and formal reasoning. So for an economist to say that one thing caused something else, they will need to set out a counterfactual. So what would have happened if you know, the first thing hadn't happened and show that th this is a good counterfactual, that it's a sensible counterfactual. And then they'll often run some kind of a test which eliminates alternative possibilities for the cause of this event. And maybe approach it from both a qualitative and a quantitative angle, just trying to really make sure that when you say something caused something else, what do you mean exactly? And make sure that what you're saying is accurate. Occasionally, historians can be a bit looser with this, which is sometimes necessary. Sometimes you just don't have the data or you don't have the information or the sources to show something was definitely true. You just have to you know, say it was true and think on the balance of probabilities. It probably was true, but I do think this is something that history could take from economics, definitely. It is this just holding yourself to, to a high standard of reasoning. Just make sure that when you say something, you've done the best possible job that you can of showing that it's true. So do you have any investment advice for us? Should we should be looking at Tesla? <laughs> what do, you, do you have any? So I'm not really an investor. I don't know what prices are going to do next, but I will say that I wouldn't be buying Tesla. So I, I think this might be a good one to sit out. Okay. Well, William, thank you so much for coming in. Again, this is the book, Boom and Bust. Definitely, if you're interested in financial history or even if you're just interested in kind of what goes on in markets, I, I recommend it. So thanks so much, William. Appreciate it. Right, thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.